is the Equity Experience Podcast, a space created for every educator or school leader who is authentically pursuing equity and inclusion in their classrooms and schools. I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning, and I welcome you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Equity Experience Podcast, where I'm your host, Dr. Carla Manning. I hope you are well. I hope that you are blessed as you are tuning into the show. On today's show, we have a very special guest, Mr. Ernest Krim. Ernest, thank you and welcome to being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Manning. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Indeed, indeed. So we'll just go ahead on and jump right into our conversation, Ernest. If you can, introduce mm-hmm. yourself, tell us who you are and about the work that you do. Yeah, my name is Mr. Ernest Krim Third. I'm a Chicago area-based educator. More specifically, I live in Joliet, which is about 45 minutes from Chicago. It's always weird introducing myself because I'm so used to people reading off my perfectly crafted <laughs> biography <laughs> that makes me sound so good. Right? <laughs> yeah, because it keeps me from being long-winded, actually. I think the best way to introduce me would just say that I am, I feel like I'm an instrument uh, of the creator that's mm. working in my divine purpose. Mm. And my strengths include, I would say, speaking, so communicating to people. I also like to write, so I'm an author of Black History Saved My Life. I'm a trained and licensed educator of high school students. I also consult districts on how to best approach cultural competency. I'm an activist. I'm a truth teller. And I think all of that just encompasses me. I just believe that everything that I'm saying right now just encompasses me using my strengths and more specifically researching as a history teacher to use the past to prepare us for a better future. And my primary focus now at this point in my life, and I think for the rest of my life, is really just to enrich the Black community and using what I know to help us out as best I can through my avenue and through my strengths that's given from the creators. Beautiful, beautiful. I like that. So you mentioned that you are the author of Mm -hmm. sort of a personal memoir, if you will, Black History Saved My Life. Tell us about this book, a very intriguing title. You know, tell us what experiences you've had that led you to writing the book. You know, what are some of the Mm -hmm. arguments that you're making or some of the perspectives that you're taking in your book? Cool. Yeah, great question. So I guess the perfect place to start would be college. So my first year in college, I was at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And like most high school kids transitioning to college, I didn't really know what I wanted to study. I knew I wanted to go to that school, but even then I didn't put that much research into it. I knew it was a good school, so I went there and I took up psychology as a major. I took that major primarily because I was that friend who, even still now, the friend that people went to to talk about their problems. And I felt like I was a good listener. Not sure if I always provided the best advice, but I would listen. (laughs) And I felt that might have been a strength of mine. So I took up psychology. And again, it was never like a passion of mine, but I'm like, "Eh, that might be interesting. Maybe I can do that and start studying some things. I didn't really have that connection yet to my culture as being the focal point of my career endeavors. What happened was after the first semester in college, I almost flunked out. I was on academic probation Mm -hmm. and I began to just question things in terms of, well, I'm not really that excited about going to this class every day. So why am I majoring in it? And I had to really think, if I'm not doing that well in it, is it a strength? Now, I also know sometimes you have to take upon a challenge, but I wasn't too sure that I was ready for that. So I said, you know what, I'm going to take one more semester. If I don't really like it, if I'm not doing that well, I'm going to have to reevaluate some things. Lo and behold, the next semester, I did bad again. <laughs> and I dropped the class halfway through. And that same semester, I had decided to take a Black history course. And I took this course because, for one, I was always surrounded by Black history. My mom had always had these books in my house. 
everything was just black history, positive aspects. Now we knew some of the bad things that were occurring in the nineties, but it was always being reinforced with positive positivity. So I just had that, but I never took a black history course. So I'm like, you know what? I would love to just get everything my mom taught me from a professor's perspective to get some reading material to kind of like reinforce and dig deeper into what she taught me. So I took this course and I thought it was interesting because all my friends were saying these black history courses were so hard. And I'm just like, it can't be hard if it's about me. Like, so <laughs> I started taking this course around the same time as I dropped the psychology course. And I loved it so much. I began to sit in the front row of every class. And I had never done that in college or school at all. Like voluntarily going to the front, actively paying attention. Now, of course, we didn't have the distraction of cell phones back then when I started in 2005, 2006. But it was still something that I just I put the laptop to the side. I'm paying attention. I'm fully engrossed in this whole thing, engulfed in the whole thing. And after that semester, I said, well, let me just drop the major completely and take mm-hmm. some more black history, take a journalism course, take some things I'm interested in, just see what I like. Mm-hmm. And again, in the midst of that, we have some racist issues happening on campus. There were some racially based parties targeting Mexicans, targeting black folks. There was the whole debate about whether the school should have the mascot of the chief, an indigenous mm-hmm. person, which wasn't even represented by an indigenous person during the halftime dancing ceremonies they would have. So it was like this real big just amalgamation of issues that were happening in 2005, 2006 that were rooted from the 60s because mm-hmm. even my my existence on that campus at U of I came from something that people fought for in the 60s called Project 500, where the mm-hmm. school had to meet at least 500 Black freshmen a year. And even at that point, they were only hovering around 500 and something. We were like, I believe, I want to say less than 7% of the campus and I got to get my numbers right, but it was a lot less than that. So I just began to ask all these questions. And as I was taking these black history courses, what happened was everything that I wondered about my upbringing was answered through these courses. And I'm like, wow, this is deep. And I'm like, if the dudes I grew up with in Chicago that did not make the choices I made or maybe did not come from the same background that I came from, if they were able to see this knowledge, I firmly believe that that's the thing that's going to help make things right for us. I felt like that was the dividing line right there. Like, yeah, I was lucky to have my mom in my life, my dad in my life, and a family that valued education. Not everybody was that fortunate, but I felt like if we learned this history, that could be the thing that will awaken us, you know, because I even feel like right now what we're going through is this mental revolution. We've had the civil Mm -hmm. war, the physical aspect. We've had all these, we had the political revolution of the 60s. I feel like now we're going through a mental and, and it's a conscious effort for us to realize we got to take these shackles off. So mm. um, anyway, I mean, I'll take these courses. And the next course I took just inspired me so much. It was a 100 level course that I said, I'm declaring this major. I want to be a professor or a teacher, somebody that can stand nice. up and tell people about how great this is. My first mm. goal was actually to be a professor, but I settled, not want to say settled, but I chose high school teaching because I felt like I could get them in the middle mm. <laughs> before they made, you know, the decisions they made in their life. And lo and behold, I found out that that professor, Dr. Abdul Al-Kamat, he used to be Gerald McWhorter. He actually taught my mom at UIC Mm. in the 70s. Mm. So how about that for divine intervention? Right, right. (laughs) So I became this guy on campus who, that was like Facebook's first year. So whenever I would learn stuff, I was posting about it online. Mm. I was going to these rallies. I was going to the uh, Black Student Union meetings. I was a leader of a group called Minority Leadership Group. I had some great mentors in my life who believed in me more than I did at that time. So all these things started to come together. And it just became a thing where I said, well, I want to do whatever I can to help us. And I think teaching would be the thing that works best for me, even though I was never a guy who wanted to speak in front of people prior to this. I just felt like I was so inspired. This was my thing. 
So wow. yeah, when I graduated, I taught my first two years on an alternative school in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then that eventually led me to be at this district now in Joliet. And my whole focus was, look, I need to be able to teach my people. And by teaching my people, I'm going to enlighten everybody because the issues that the black community faces are at the foundation mm-hmm. of these pressure that we have here in America. So at this district now, I'm teaching diverse groups of people, but I'm still mm-hmm. teaching it from the same perspective and it's having the same impact. So while I'm at the school for the first, let's say, five years, I'm pretty much just doing my thing in class. I'm having a great time with the kids. I'm being passionate about my work. I have a mentoring group that I do that focuses on males, uh, black, white, um, Hispanic that are coming to this group. Mm-hmm. And then something happens that just completely changes my life. So 2016, my wife and I were both educators. We were at this event in Chicago like two weeks before we returned to work. And we were the targets of a hate crime because a white woman, mm-hmm. we thought she was finished, her and her friends, we thought they were finished using a beanbag. So we grabbed it to play the game, the cornhole game. And they approached us, you know, she approached us in a hostile manner, began to call us out of our names, demand the bag back. And of course, this is something that was a lot deeper than the bag to her. I mm-hmm. feel like she was just waiting for somebody because mm-hmm. nobody gets that mad over a beanbag. I was just about to ask. <laughs> like over yeah, a beanbag? Yeah, really not that serious. I've had right. plenty of time. You're shooting at a gym and the ball goes down to the other end. Somebody might take it. Hey, you mind if I get that back? I would still shoot. You know, like mm-hmm. it's not what it was about. But here's the thing. She was with two black people and another white person. So it was, it's weird how this happened. And she began to call us the uh, N-word because we didn't give the bag back. So I began to record it. I'm a millennial. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. I first retort is to record things because honestly, I didn't, don't fully trust the justice system. So I feel like I can at least advocate for myself, have evidence if something transpires. And also, mm-hmm. too, social justice is make sure people know this is a person that's toxic and wherever she works or goes to school, people need to be aware. So mm-hmm. I take out the phone. I begin to record. And she's mad. She's heated. She slaps it out my hand. I pick it back up again. I'm asking her to repeat everything she does. And then she turns and she spits in the direction of me and my wife. And it lands mm. mostly on my wife. Got on wow. me too. And of course, you know, chaos ensued because oh really, y'all, yeah, because you don't know like what just happened. What am I going to do? What's the best approach? Her friends who were black, if people get a chance to watch this video, their friends were like coming, like they were almost like a bridge or like a wall. They were keeping us away from her when she was saying these words. And then when the spit came, a security guard that she was actually calling over to detain me came and got her. So we were fortunate in that respect. And also in my mind, I'm thinking, this is probably two weeks after Alton Sterling. If people are not familiar with that, you should look that up, who was murdered mm-hmm. in Louisiana. And uh, Philando Castile, who a lot of people mm-hmm. know was murdered on Facebook Live by officers in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So all of this was on my mind. And I felt like in that instance, in that particular situation, my wife and I, we responded the way that we should have considering all the historical circumstances and what we were up against and just our family, everything, right? Mm-hmm. So we leave that situation. It's July 30th, 2016. I put the videos together. I posted it online. And my whole goal was, look, you cannot disrespect myself, my wife, my family like this. And this mm-hmm. has a deeper historical connection and connotation than just what happened to me. It's not just about me. Like, you know, Absolutely. it's about my ancestors who mm-hmm. dealt with this all the time and did not have the leverage to even fight against it. So my mm-hmm. goal was justice by any means necessary. Yeah. I posted it online that day, got all the information. She got fired from a job, of course, but the only issue was I wanted justice. So we wanted to get her arrested. Mm-hmm. And from August, 2016 to like mid-October, I had been receiving tips from people online to get her arrested. 
And that transpired in October. She was trying to apologize. I wasn't for it. And then what happens is over the next year or so, I'm waiting impatiently for this trial to start. And this is where the book comes in. Some days I was so frustrated because I had never dealt with racism in my face like that. I have other mm-hmm. incidents I talk about in my book, some overt, some covert and systemic. Mm-hmm. But I had days where I had to really take a mental health day, uh, leaving work, just not really feeling protected at the school, not feeling like everybody had my back at the school. And whether it was completely fictional or not, we deal with that as black people because mm-hmm. We don't, unless you really say you support us, we don't know because we're in hostile terrain whenever we step out of our house. And so one day in March, I was driving to work and I just completely broke down. I was just thinking Mm -hmm. about everything and the state of the country. I broke down, pulled over to a lot and I was just like, I can't go in today. I'm just not in a good mindset. So I called off work. That was my first time ever considering talking to a therapist about anything ever in my life, but I couldn't find one because I had always used my insurance or a medical doctor. And even then, I barely went to that doctor. So I went home, called some people, nothing worked out. And I said, I got to write. <laughs> and then I began to like make an outline of all the incidences I had dealing with racism from the age of six to mm. 28. And this book, I called it Black History Saved My Life because when I think about all the issues I dealt with, and I say this, Dr. Manning, I've dealt with things that I feel like are commonplace for black folks in America, but I don't think that we always realize we have been the targets of them. Mm-hmm. And there are some of us who have dealt with issues way worse than mine mm-hmm. who probably have not had the opportunity to articulate it, but mm-hmm. don't realize they've been the targets right. of it perpetually. So yeah. I say mm-hmm. it saved my life because whenever I had an incident of racism happen, whether it be my mom or my dad or a history book, I was always given the why. Me being given that why allowed me to make sense of it more than feeling as if it just happened to me because the world hates me. It's like, no, this hate is more of a reflection of the people who have bestowed it upon me as Mm -hmm. opposed to myself. So Black History saved my life in that instance, July 30th, 2016, because without that foundation of knowledge, I would have responded in a way in that instance that I feel like could have been deadly for me. Mm -hmm. And again, not judging anybody for how they would have responded then because everybody's different and I understand the pain. But in that situation, if I didn't know who I was, I would have let her words, that spit, all of that trigger me to doing something that to me could have led to death or prison or anything else like that. So mm-hmm. I think I kind of provided a backdrop before, but I think <laughs> it's for people to know that it's Black folks, oppressed people. If you don't know your history in this country, you are really at the will <laughs> of the oppressor and they can finagle you and position you in any way they want for their doing of their life. Mm-hmm. Powerful, powerful, Mr. Cram. And, you know, I really appreciate your personal perspective and how you really draw purpose from your pain, you know. And mm-hmm. I think with your book, that's a powerful example of that and a very courageous one. You know, everyone is not always vulnerable or courageous enough to write their story and to share their story. But it seems like you were able to do that in a way mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's meaningful for you. So that's very powerful. Yeah, so you mentioned that that you were a teacher and still are a teacher Mm -hmm. working with young people. So can you talk about why do you think it's important that schools teach Black history? You know, and I'm also interested to know about any sort of tractions that you've made at your school Mm -hmm. or even within your school district around the teaching and the pedagogy of Black history within K-12 schools. Yeah, great question. So one of the hallmark studies that I constantly quote in my book is the fact that 
is a Harvard study. I think it was a joint study between Harvard and the University of Pittsburgh. And they said that when black students are taught to have racial pride, primarily in their household, they perform better academically. And I think that counters a narrative that has been, I want to say, enforced in our community for a while, as if to say that you black power is a bad thing or black pride is a bad thing. Since maybe the 60s or 70s, it hasn't been as commonplace for people to represent that and feel welcome, maybe up until like the Black Lives Matter movement of like 2015, 2016, because mm-hmm. I think we're taught that, well, you know, especially my generation, we were taught the politics of respectability a lot. And it's something I even had to unlearn. Well, if you dress mm-hmm. this way, if you talk this way, if you act like this, if you wear your hair short, if you do that, mm-hmm. then you'll get by. And mm-hmm. we're realizing this generation has realized and figured out that that's not true at all. So when I came across <laughs> this, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Dr. King got assassinated in a suit, for instance, you know? Mm, so, yeah. When I came across this study, conveniently, as I was going through my whole incident with the hate crime, I was like, wow, this is true because my life, <laughs> this is true. And like, my life is a perfect example of that because even a part of, there's an incident in my book where I talk about when I was nine and I asked my mom why we had never had a black president, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, my mom having that foundation of somebody who helped campaign for the first black mayor of Chicago, Harold Washington. And, and yes, introduced nice. me to Barack Obama. Oh, yeah, she was pregnant with me. She always tells me that. Mm. She told me we didn't have a black president. This is in like 1996 <laughs> because they're waiting on me to grow up. And you have to understand <laughs> how much pride that instilled in me. Not that I want to be the president anymore, but the fact that I felt and feel that if I wanted to do anything related to that, I could if I focused enough. So black history is so important because our kids have to know, for one, like you said, where we have not always been enslaved. Like that wasn't where our history began. That was like the car accident on our highway to greatness. But also too, that even in that situation, we have overcome so many barriers and have done so many great things that have been hidden for years and years. I mean, I just found out the other day that there was a black hockey league that predates the NHL. I didn't know that it took, so there's still things that I still learn to this day. I didn't learn about Black Wall Street until about a year after I graduated college and I had a minor in African-American studies. So just think about the impact Black Wall Street has had on our generation, just learning how we can recreate that. So learning that you come from something great, to me, with Black history, which we have come from something great and we are still great, it means that you're more likely to emulate that. And when you have these examples, like I wanted to be a teacher probably unconsciously because my mom was an educator for like 35 years. She never put that in my mind, but me saying, well, look, I saw the impact she had taking her kids to DC and taking them on trips and taking them to church on Sundays. And in my mind, that's the foundation of activism, being in the community, working with these kids. Because when I look at what you see with some of the adults, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, what they'll say about racial issues, I don't want to reform you. I don't have time for that. (laughs) I think there's a space for that, but I don't think that's my purpose. But if I start with this generation and what's so great about where I'm at now in Joliet is there's a mixture of all these different groups of people in one school. And I'm talking to them all about the same issues, unfiltered, uncut. And it's letting people know that this is what we came from and this is what we don't want to emulate again, the past. But we also want to figure out what great things did happen in the past for black folks and other people when they fought together so we can mirror that and, and do it moving forward. I'm not sure if I even answered that question because I get going. But I was just saying that just by, you know, having that history as a foundation, my life is a testament to it. And by teaching at this school, I've seen an increase in curiosity. For example, this past year, 
was the first time that we had enough kids willing to sign up for a Black History course in over 10 years. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then I've been doing the Black Student Union at this school every school year after the hate crime happened. So mm. you see, there's a renewed interest. And I imagine once we return to school, there'll be even more kids who are curious about their background. Absolutely. So if you can then, Mr. Cram, can you talk about, I guess it would be called maybe the politics of teaching curriculum, but like kind of sort of the behind the scenes. So what might be some challenges or some barriers that teachers could potentially face or that even students could face, say, if they want to take or if they want to teach a Black history class, but the school doesn't offer it or the school district doesn't offer it? What might people be able to do? Great question. So whenever I speak at schools, I've had kids themselves come up to me and ask, like, what can they do for even just something basic as having a Black student union? Believe it or not, like, I'm sure things will change now because of what happened with George Floyd, but kids were not able to have district school boards approve a club like this, or even even to call it a Black Student Union just because mm. of the name. You know, they had to call it different things to be politically correct. So that was a barrier already. And in terms of having the course, I think one barrier that everybody has to consider now is the fact that, and I'll go on record of saying this, our history teachers in this country are not trained to properly teach it at all. Teach black <laughs> our, history? I, not at all. Not at mm-hmm. all. I'm going to tell you why. Because I have a history degree, okay, for the minor in African-American studies. I went to a school, top public school in my state. I was not required to take a black history course. I was required, things may have changed, I'm not sure, but I was required as a history major to take Western civilization. And as a moment of transparency, when I went to this school, I went to a white elementary, then a black high school, and I went to this uh, majority white PWI uh, school. When they said Western civilization was required, I looked at a map, Dr. Mann, and I said, oh, so we about to learn about Native Americans because the Western hemisphere, right? I went to that course, like, I'm about to finally learn about the indigenous people. And this man started talking about Greece and Rome. I was like, huh? That was a requirement. But what I did was I was so interested in black history. Of course, every course I took outside of that was like black history, Latino history. I took some Asian history too. And it all cross-listed with, uh, I guess you would say the mainstream U.S. history courses. But again, they weren't required. I went to a school where the mascot was Chief Illini, but nobody was required to take an indigenous history course. Mm. So at this juncture in history, when these school districts are all trying to be politically correct and saying they need a black history course, the biggest issue is most of these teachers, and I'm saying, yes, most of the white teachers especially have not been trained properly to even teach this course. They're taught to teach mainstream U.S. history. So that's going to be the big issue right there. Because you can be black or white or whatever and teach this course. But if you're not trained correctly, what you're going to teach is something that's going to do an injustice to these kids who have genuine questions and genuine concerns. And I think that districts around this country need to start bringing in people who can train them. Because if you already have the foundation, you got to start. They need to start teaching them how to intertwine these stories and these mm-hmm. narratives and how to research different people and also defer to some of the kids who actually live through this experience and see how they can help. But again, I would definitely say that they aren't trained well enough because I just know firsthand as a person who was in college in this and I see it firsthand even now. So we have to be very diligent in how we seek to have these courses taught, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, Ernest, when you say teachers are not trained properly, and I agree with you, I would totally agree with you, but can you break down and unpack, like, what do you mean when you say training and what that training may even look like? 
So say if right. we have a teacher, right? So say if we have a teacher who recognizes, say if we have a white teacher who recognizes mm-hmm. that she, and we'll say she because, you know, the majority of educators mm-hmm. are white female, you know, she recognizes that she has not had the proper academic training. You know, she doesn't really have a lot of personal experiences or connections to Black people or Black history. You know, so what might a training look like for a mm-hmm. teacher, you know, who falls into that sort of demographic? And she's already graduated. Does she go back to school and get a master's? Does she self-educate? Does she, you know, what might that look like for her? That's a great question. I think for me, and again, I'll use my life as a testimony because I think a lot of us in academia realize that when you graduate, it's called commencement for a reason. You're just beginning. They're feeding you the foundation, but the the hope and the desire is that you'll want to go out and learn how to cook yourself. So a lot of the stuff I've learned about Black history truthfully has come after I graduated. And I think for any educator that thinks that their job or their training stop when they graduate, that's a big misconception. So you have to find ways to learn. And I don't think you have to get your master's. I think you have to have your school has to mandate training that will educate you on these issues. There are a plethora of trainers out there that would do a phenomenal job. But I'm not even just talking about, I'm not trying to even mention myself, but I'm saying there are people all across this country that specialize in this type of stuff. And Mm -hmm. I think, again, if you're a history teacher, you've been taught a Eurocentric narrative. So I think what has to be done is understand that this Eurocentric narrative is what leads to this. That's the issue. That's the reason why textbooks in Texas are talking about Black people came over as workers as opposed to people who were enslaved and treated with barbaric treatment and treated as animals and chattel. So you have to unlearn all of that and understand that everything you learned was for a particular purpose and it wasn't to uplift or empower Black people. So I think you can figure this out. I think we need to really emphasize this too. You have to go towards Black authors, Black speakers, you know, Black professors, people who have lived this because, and it's no shots, but what I've seen so much since this incident happened is some of the top books are by people who are white. (laughs) Now, I don't discount that experience, but what I'm saying is I think the error in that is you're still learning about race from the perspective of somebody who's lived in privilege their entire life. I don't have this book now, but I always hear it. I think it's called Stamped from the Beginning. Oh, Um, yeah, by Kendi. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a book that everybody needs to give. Not having read it myself, but just some of the reviews I've read and how people discuss it. Start with people like that. Ask genuine questions. And again, I think educators can do, especially if they're white, is to understand if you're in a class, even if you're teaching a mainstream U.S. history course, transparency. Let your kids know, look, I'm telling you this from a perspective of a white so-and-so who grew up in the suburbs, never experienced this. So I want to learn from you all. When I first went to my district, it's majority Hispanic. I let my kids know, look, look, let me know. What do y'all do to celebrate this? What's the best restaurant Mm -hmm. to go to? How can I learn about this? I let them know up front. And I think that's why I've been able to build great relationships. Be real, teachers. Again, our districts have to not make this optional because what they'll find too is just because you have a history teacher does not mean they want to teach the truth. You're going to have some that feel like they know it all and they don't need to learn anything. This stuff has to be mandated from this day forward if it has not already been. Mm. Well stated, well stated. Let's go into the actual practices of teaching Black history. So say if we have a teacher and, you know, the principal is all for it. Like, yeah, we do need to have a Black history curriculum. Let's go. You know, let's do it. So what might be a good starting place for a teacher who may have a curriculum of Black history or who may not Mm -hmm. have a curriculum, but, you know, also has the green light to actually teach Black history? 
what might be a right. good starting point for actual, like the actual instruction and curriculum of actual delivering a Black history curriculum? Say, you know, let's just say middle yeah. school. What might be right, a good cool. starting point? Yeah, great question. So mm-hmm. most of my career, I've taught U.S. history, so I've always had to intertwine our narrative. What was deep for me was this past year was my first time fully being able to teach this without any restraints or barriers. And what I would suggest to people is you use the format that you did for your, I guess you would say, again, the mainstream U.S. history course. So if you have these like broader topics, you just now have to find stories that will make it unique to the perspective of the people you're teaching about. Again, but the main difference would be if you're teaching about African-American history, I would strongly encourage you to have a unit. It does not have to be the hugest unit, but you want to have a unit on African civilizations because when I began teaching this year, first thing I did was something on identity. And I had my kids just give me words that they felt resonated with what it was to be black or Hispanic or whatever. And a lot of our kids are fed, even to this day, these kids are born in like, let's say 2002, three and four, they still connect blackness to negativity and poverty and all these other destitute things. But the foundation of every civilization in this world is rooted from Africa, the motherland. Like when I was taking Western civilization, that man never once taught me that the ancient Greeks and Romans, like Pythagoras and mm-hmm. Hippocratic, the Socrates, they went, yeah, exactly. They went to Africa to mm-hmm. learn, Timbuktu later on to learn. So you have to make sure our kids know that and also make sure they know that the original ancient Egyptians were black people, were Nubians, mm-hmm. not the gods of Egypt that we see with Christian Bale in Hollywood. That's mm-hmm. what our kids think is an actual fact. Even the History Channel today still shows people who are like white with a dark tan or spray on tan. So I would say start with that. If you're having trouble on who to look up, maybe look up Professor Henry Louis Gates or something. I just got a book because I'm still learning. I got a book called A History of African Civilization from Professor Manu Ampim. This is a, a course that he's teaching at a university in California. I'm still learning. So have some foundational knowledge with that. And then I would say moving forward, we normally teach U.S. history from the political perspective which is already going to be whitewashed because every president with the exception of Barack <laughs> Obama is white. Mm-hmm. So I've been noticing that my last few years as a teacher, I'm like, man, all I teach about is wars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I teach about the American Revolution and the War of 1812 and Westward Expansion, Manifest Destiny. And if you're still teaching Manifest Destiny as a good thing, you really want to check yourself. So <laughs> the political approach, I feel like, has to be adjusted to a social approach mm-hmm. when you're teaching Black history. If you're thinking of a good starting point just in general for a history of people, you want to look at like Howard Zinn. That's not just black history, but it just kind of lets you know the importance of having a counter narrative mm-hmm. or like James Long with the uh, lies my teacher told me. So just being able to teach from the perspective of what people actually experience. Most of your course should probably be narratives. Frederick Douglass, Confessions of a Slave Girl, Harriet Jacobs, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass. You want to read about, you know, people like Sojourner Truth, of course. So like what they're going to probably find out is a lot of what they create is going to have to be from scratch because what we're attempting to do now at this juncture in history has never really been done on a mass scale. But again, so I would say those those tips start with Africa and change your teaching of U.S. history from a political perspective to a social perspective so we can hear these stories of people who are oppressed. Excellent. Excellent. You know, at the beginning of the conversation, Ernest, you said that you also are a consultant where you work with schools and school districts, you know, 
And right now, a lot of schools and principals and teachers are becoming very open to the idea Mm -hmm. of having more racial educational equity training, culturally responsive education training, the teaching of Black history, so on and so on. So can you talk about those dynamics, you know, from your perspective of being a consultant, being a trainer, you know, Mm -hmm. what are some of the workshops? Here's some, you know, some self-pumping that you can do right now, but what are some of the workshops and trainings that you are offering or that you are delivering in this work of racial educational equity Mm -hmm. and teaching of Black history? Yeah, great question. So I'll preface it by this. When I first started speaking, I started speaking to children about my experience with the hate crime. And of course, I guess now you would say I'm speaking about my book. So I talked to the kids a lot about how I was able to traverse through these racist experiences throughout my life. And again, I talked to them about how important it is to have uh, Black history as a foundation. That just kind of took on a life of its own. And then the uh, educators in the audience would then also want me to come train their staff about this. So what I do first when I speak to kids is I let them know that they have to take ownership of their education and understand that they need to learn these things and be on the pursuit of their own educational journey. But on the flip side, of course, when I speak to educators, I speak about my experience, but from the perspective of this is what you need to know about what your kids deal with and how you can adapt to this. Because I came across a study recently, and these kids really deal with it. It said that Black kids are exposed to racism on a minimum of five times per day Mm. on average. And I think we have to really be troubled about that because they're overexposed. And I'm not, I don't want to compare trauma across different generations, right? Because, you know, we have grandparents who maybe have witnessed lynchings and so on and so forth. Mm. But I think the difference in this generation is you can scroll through a timeline and see shooting, killing, shooting, killing, Mm. lynch, lynch, lynch. And I might not be in person, but you have to also understand that subconsciously your brain does not always understand and realize when something is not actual as opposed to it just being something that's happening in a distant uh, location. Mm -hmm. So I like to, when I train staff, let them know this is my black experience that is probably similar to what your kids deal with. And by you not addressing these needs and these issues and their concerns, or maybe by you not even knowing them because they don't have a safe space to tell you, they're suffering in silence. And there's a lot of trauma, a lot of stress that goes into that. There's a lot of learned helplessness. So I speak to them and let them know that you have to, for one, you cannot assume, (laughs) even though it's my experience, that everybody always does the same thing. But you also have to say, how can I better reach these kids? How can I talk to them? How can I show them better examples of people who look like them? So I offer training that will allow them to implement a Black student union program to give their kids a voice, because that's something I've done successfully for several years now. I also work with them in terms of how can they implement more Black voices in their curriculum, regardless of the curriculum, because I think one thing that becomes a barrier to a lot of people is they say, well, I don't teach history. I don't teach English. So how can I do this? Mm. I can show you all of that. It's as simple as, you know, for one, we have to first backtrack and understand what is even the purpose of my class? Mm. (laughs) What's the purpose of my education? Because from my perspective as an insider, education is too long function as something that just feeds capitalism in terms of we're just attempting to create workers. But what if there aren't any jobs in the community? How am I or why am I creating workers for a community that doesn't even have economic opportunity? So for instance, if you're a math teacher, you want to start thinking of it, I'm teaching problem solving. (laughs) So Let's in turn look at what are some of the problems that my children come in contact with. And if you don't know, 
you need to start talking to your kids. <laughs> if you're traveling to a black area, maybe a Hispanic area, whatever, and you don't know too much about it, you need to first take a day and just talk to them. And then when you start going over these formulas and these equations, let them know these problems that we're discussing are similar to, you know, these problems that you might have brought up, so on and so forth. This is how we attack this. As black folks, we have to understand how it's practical. How is this going to help me? What is this for? We don't, I don't right. have time to waste. Like, I got so many kids who was dropping out, selling drugs or in school, selling drugs on the side. And when I speak to them about why they shouldn't do it, it sounds hopeless because in the back of my mind, I get why you don't value the other courses or even sometimes my course because you're making this amount of money on the side. So why would you think school is worth anything? We need to be real with these kids. This is what it's for. This is what it's going to help you out with and be practical. So I help people through the research, provide some positive examples that they can implement. And also just train educators on being culturally competent and being aware of the, the different backgrounds that they're coming in contact with on a daily basis. So what are some of the current projects and activities you have going on now within your work? Okay, good question. So I'll say this. Since May 26, my life has just taken a completely different turn. For those mm-hmm. who don't know, that was, I believe George Floyd was murdered the 25th. But I think that when it came to the public, it was the 26th or the 27th. So life just really hasn't been the same because I've always been engaged in activism in my community. Primarily, again, when my hate crime happened, I just felt like I had to do more. So I've been really big on the forefront of Joliet about police accountability and promoting black businesses and entrepreneurship with our kids and, of course, encouraging black history courses and teachings. So that's always been amplified. And I would, uh, before this incident happened, I was training people how to engage in activism in the digital age, speaking about my experience with groups of kids on Zoom. I was doing like a YouTube thing, whatever, when I was talking about people's unique Black experience. But when that thing, when that happened with George Floyd, everything has been pushed to the side. And I've been focusing a lot on just grassroots activism in my area. And we have an issue going on with our mayor who's been out there. He was out there abusing and protesting and so on and so forth. We have an issue with our police. Yeah, he was a former officer. He got disciplined. But again, he was an officer in the 90s. So a lot of that stuff was swept under the rug. So he Mm. went out there May 31st. And I guess he felt like he wanted to put his cape back on and somebody caught him on camera taking a protester by the collar and slamming him against the car. Yeah, a lot of stuff has been coming out since then. People actually have proof of him doing stuff like that now in the 90s. So I've been focusing a lot on what can I do on a grassroots level to keep this momentum going? Because everybody's seeing it's not just Minnesota. It's not just Louisville, Kentucky, you know, rest in peace, Breonna Taylor. It's not just Georgia with Amount Arbor. It's, it's happening everywhere. So. I'm focusing on helping our people know that I'm calling this series that I'm going to do called When the Dust Settles. After, you know, the momentum of everybody being out on the streets subsides, we're still going to have to worry about what's next. It's great to get that aggression. And I'm going to rallies like, you know, every week minimum. But mm-hmm. after we go back home, there's a lot Damn of work what? to do. There's a lot of work to do. So I'm working on this series where I'm teaching, you know, parents, kids, allies alike, How do we move forward socially? How do we move forward politically? How do we move economically? I do consulting with helping parents on a practical level because I'm the recipient of my mother and father teaching me these things, how they can help their children maintain um, and build confidence in the face of the adversity, which of course would be racism because it's a traumatic thing. I've had some experiences this year. I have my Zoom call with my BSU, got hacked by a group of racists with Mm. our kids on the call. So you know, I began to think like, how is it that I know how to respond? I have to break this down to a formula. 
So we have to be able to teach our kids proactively. This is what you do to build up your foundation, because if you ever come in contact with this, which there's a high likelihood, whether it be digitally or in person, this is how you respond. This is how you know who you are and so on and so forth. So I'm doing that, you know, trying to get back into writing, but it's been a whirlwind. I think that's initially why I even had to reschedule our initial interview. I've been moving a lot. (laughs) I've been moving. But that's good. I mean, it's good to keep that energy, you know, flowing as opposed to, to stagnant. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. This has been a very, very empowering, insightful, and necessary conversation. You know, I don't think we talk enough about the teaching of Black history, the politics around Mm -hmm. it, you know, what people can do to advance Black history curriculum. These are conversations that definitely need to happen more, for sure. Yeah. If people would like to get in contact with you, Mr. Cram, how may they be able to do so? Yeah, you can uh, get in touch with me. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For Facebook, it's facebook.com backslash Mr. Cram the third. So that's three I's. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at MRCram3. So that's number three, at MRCram3. I'm also on LinkedIn too, if you put in my full name. And if you want to send me an email, that's info at earnestcram.com. So look forward to hearing from anybody that's out there working with you all too. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Mr. Cram, for joining us on today's show of the Equity Experience. I really appreciate you being on here. Thanks for having me. had a great time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Equity Experience podcast. I hope that the conversation that we had today can impact you and can encourage you and inspire you to make change and to take action in whatever situation, whatever context that you may be in. Feel free to leave a review. Feel free to comment and to subscribe. Thank you for listening. Be well and be blessed.